Okay, friends, Boker Tov, let's start with a little poll here. We have a little poll for you to fill out. We like to start that way these days to get us thinking about who's in the room. What is your experience with Jewish learning? You can only choose one option. Option one, Jewish learning primarily challenges me and changes me. Option two, Jewish learning primarily is meaningful for me, but doesn't change me. Option three, Jewish learning is primarily social for me. It's entertaining and fun. Okay, it could be different answers, but choose the one that speaks to you most. Okay, and then in just a few seconds, we'll get the results here. We'll get the results. This can be descriptive or prescriptive. It could be your reality of how it does work, or it could be your aspiration of how you want it to work. Either is fine. Okay, we got the answers. We got the poll. What do we come out with? 89% Jewish learning primarily challenges and changes me. No one says it's meaningful, but doesn't change me. And for 11%, um, which probably means one person, <laughs> Jewish learning is primarily social for me, entertaining and fun. Okay, great. Whatever it is, we'll enjoy our time together and either we'll be transformed or we'll have fun, hopefully. So here we go, friends. Malacha number 29. As we continue to explore the topic of hides and their use in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle, what once seemed esoteric becomes more and more realized as the foundation for spiritual renewal. Now, the previous malacha discusses the use of salting hides once they are removed from the animal. So now the hides need to be cut to be the appropriate size and shape. One aspect of preparing hides to be cut constitutes the 29th malacha of mesartate, mesartate, sometimes pronounced mesartate. For one needs to score the hides to scratch lines on their surface that will show where they need to be cut. In a more modern context, this malacha would also apply to folding a paper to show where to cut later. This does not, though, apply to folding or using a knife to trace on food, as we normally say, doesn't apply to food. Life unan unanalyzed is a chaotic mess. One of the goals of religion, I would, I would suggest, is to take that mess and make meaning out of it. We decide how and where to cut things as we determine what is in and what is out. We take a formless mass and we shape it. We interpret that which is raw. One can be a radical relativist and say that those cuts are in vain and that life has no meaning at all. One can, in the opposite extreme, be a fundamentalist and say that the shape and meaning of everything is predetermined, clear, and absolute. But Judaism, I propose, offers an alternative view. Judaism informs me that we must be alive, responsive, and ever-evolving in our meaning-making process. Friedrich Nietzsche was one of the most significant philosophers of the late 19th century. In the 1870s and 1880s, 80s, I don't know why his image is not showing up there. Oh, something's wrong in that slide. Okay. In the 1870s and 1880s, his health severely declined. Dysentery, syphilis, Diphtheria. In 1889, he suffered a nervous breakdown and he never regained his sanity. In 
spending the last 11 years of his life in a vegetative state until his death in 1900. By the way, um, those who claim that Nietzsche was the philosopher for Nazis, um, that's really primarily due to the fact that while he was in a vegetative state for the last 11 years of his life, his sister controlled his, his, um, his content and his sister was heavily aligned with the Nazis. Um, but anything prior to those last 11 years would indicate that, um, that Nietzsche was, would, would have been everything uh, opposed to the Nazi regime and Nazi form of thinking, but that his sister was a Nazi um, and, uh, and was his caregiver for those last 11 years. What, what happened at that moment of nervous breakdown for Nietzsche? Nietzsche saw a man whipping a horse on the street. Nietzsche ran in between the whip and the horse, yelling for the beating to stop, hugging the horse. He then collapsed crying, never to recover again. It's such a tragic story, and yet it points to Nietzsche's core humanity. We cannot keep our humanity intact and fail to be emotionally and spiritually shaken by brutal violence and pointless suffering. His heart was wide open. We need not throw ourselves under the whip. We don't need to collapse in illness, futility, and exhaustion. We must take care of our physical health and our mental health and protect ourselves but we also cannot stand silent if we wish to keep the inner light of our moral essence alive. We can't not be affected by violence and brutality. For Nietzsche, humanity is not enough. The difference between a human and an animal is the project of self-mastery, and the difference between a human and an ubermensch, what he would call a superhuman, is living by good conscience. Now, this is where some of the Nazis would uh, try to draw on a perverted form of Nietzsche's thought to say that there's a, there's a superior race. There, there, there's, the, there's humans, but then there's a superior race of uh, the Aryan race of humans. Um, and only if in, in a Darwinian Nietzsche thought they would kind of suggest, if we cultivate the superior race, can humanity thrive and evolve to the next stage? So we need to wipe out people with mental illness, wipe out people with physical disabilities, wipe out the gay folks, wipe out, wipe out the Jewish folks, wipe out, wipe out people of color, right? wipe out all the, the inferior folks so that we could have the ubermensch. But actually Nietzsche is saying this is not racial. This is about living by good conscience. Good conscience is the ubermensch. One must truly be morally alive radically awake. It is the eternal recurrence, the affirming each life choice as if we'd have to relive that choice eternally. Think of reincarnation, but a different form of reincarnation where we'd have to relive every moment of our choices in this life. We should affirm every choice we're making such that if we had to relive that choice eternally, we would continue to affirm it. Nietzsche wanted to uncover how we might escape nihilism, the rejection of all, concluding that life is meaningless. Through, through an alternative, which is the affirmation of life. But his illness didn't give him the chance to finish this grand project. Of course, one aspect of affirming the dignity of life consists of recognizing the flexibility that individuals have to define for themselves the boundaries that define when a life begins and when it ends, according to the mores that govern their lives, whether they are moral, religious, communal, or other kinds of considerations. When we see hate, cruelty, a world that is burning, there are many different ways to act or to refrain from acting. Each of us chooses our moral pursuits based on our own spiritual authenticity. What is not an option is to fail to feel, to look at the whip and merely turn away and gleefully take the next bite of our sandwich. What is not an option is just to hide in religious doctrine or to immerse ourselves in political ideology and social media bandwagoning, where we believe that we need not think or feel, but need to do no more than just to shout out what everyone else is shouting. We must wake up. In seeing the horse whipped, we see that we are being whipped. To suffer is a collective trauma, not merely personal. We are all interconnected. To take care of one another, we must take care of ourselves. To take care of ourselves, we must take care of one another. I suggest that as Jews, our primary response in a complex world should not be to philosophize, but rather to express gratitude for all that is good and all that is possible. The Talmud says that Leah was the first human to thank God, Genesis 29, 35. 
took 29 chapters, 29 chapters of the Tanakh to express thanks. Earlier generations expressed shevach, meaning praise, shevach to God, such as we saw in Genesis 9.26 or 14.20. But she, Leah, is the first to introduce hoda'ah, or thankfulness. She, In particular, she thanks God for the birth of Yehuda. Her gratitude translated from the language of emotion to the language of Hebrew, which provides the meaning of his name. Rabbi Shmuel Yitzchak Weinbaum suggested that what Leah truly wanted was to be loved by Yaakov, with the same love for which she had for Rachel. Her gratitude to God was for the child that would help her husband love her even more, given the dynamics, the social dynamics of the time. Sometimes it takes a long time to learn to appreciate what we have. Consider this Talmudic passage from the Babylonian Talmud of Chulin 60b. Because not caused it to rain. Because there was no person to work the soil and no one recognized the benefit of rain. But when a person came and understood they were essential to the, to the world, they prayed for them and they fell, the rain fell and the trees and herbs sprouted, right? It wasn't until they realized that the rain, they took that they were taking the rain for granted and they needed to express gratitude for the rain, that the rain started to fall, which is why actually rain is central in Jewish prayer. And rare is also central in the Jewish philosophies of theodicy, right? Rain is understood in, in the tractate of Ta'anit, that we fast for rain, we pray for rain. Uh, nice to mention on a rainy day, that, um, that rain is connected to virtue and vice in traditional thought. Um, and rain today, uh, you know, it's like you want to create some neuroses in your kid in raised in Arizona. They say, I pray for rain. Where's my rain? Say, oh, the, the rain that we pray for falls in another land, right? We pray for, we, we, we pray for the rain of the, in the Holy Land. Um, of course, we can also pl- pray for rain over here. Making meaning of life doesn't just mean interpreting the hard parts, but is also about expressing gratitude for the good parts. In every moment of our existence, we are unconsciously engaged in an expression of prayer in which our souls are yearning, perhaps even crying or longing to unite with the compassionate interconnectivity of all things, all life, and the oneness of all being. If we can just be silent and still for a moment and witness the intense energy, we can be transformed through radical gratitude for the gift of life, the gift of spiritual attunement. This gratitude must be not just to God, but also to humans. Rabbi Nachman writes, it is forbidden to show in gratitude, whether to a Jew or a non-Jew. That's to say, it's not only a positive mitzvah to express gratitude to God and to humans, but a prohibition to receive benefit and not express gratitude to God, a Jew or a Gentile. Ernest Becker, in his famous work, Denial of Death, writes this long quote. If you've never read this book, it's a classic. Now that we see what we might call the ontological or creature tragedy that is so peculiar to man, If he gives into agape, he risks failing to develop himself, his active contribution to the rest of life. If he expands eros too much, he risks cutting himself off from natural dependency, from duty to a larger creation. He pulls away from the healing power of gratitude and humility that he must naturally feel for having been created, for having been given the opportunity of life experience. Man thus has the absolute tension of the dualism. Individuation means that the human creature has to oppose itself to the rest of nature. It creates precisely the isolation that one can't stand and yet needs in order to develop distinctively. It creates the difference that becomes such a burden. It it accents the smallness of oneself and the sticking outness at the same time. This is natural guilt. The person experienced this as unworthiness or badness and dumb inner satisfaction. And the reason is realistic. Compared to the rest of nature, man is not a very satisfactory creation. He is riddled with fear and powerlessness. <laughs> so this is um, I, this whole book is just a gem. And here he's dealing with the futility of fighting our mortality and how we seek in vain to differentiate ourselves from all other humans. We want our homes to look different, our clothes to look different, our names to sound unique. We want, we want an identity which is 
radically unique and differentiated from others. We want attention. We want to be something unique in the world. And yet also how that very differentiation is also a plague, a plague of suffering where we become isolated and, um, and alone in our uniqueness where we can no longer exist in community, in community, in wholeness, because we needed this unique identity. We want this home, this property, this isolation, and yet we feel all alone, separate, given that uniqueness we've now demanded that we cultivate. We want to be a part of the whole, but also singular. The pathway to balancing humility and courage, the subjective and the objective, responsibility of the self, an obligation to the other is to be immersed, once again, in gratitude. This thankfulness gives birth to a sacred mandate to transcend the self in service of others. Here is how two contemporary thinkers describe this phenomenon. This is from a book you probably have never read, but it's called Active Hope. It's written by Joanna Macy and Chris Johnstone. Um, I, um, I believe they're both Christians. And the theme of their book is how to face the mess we're in, without going crazy. <laughs> what they want to suggest is there's two types of folks. Folks who really, really understand the mess we're in as human beings and go crazy, and those who deny the mess. And they just eat, drink, and be merry. They, have a, they seek happiness, and they're having a great time. They're having a great time in life because they don't want to look at the mess. I say, how do we cultivate an active hope where we are immersed in the mess of reality, and yet we are still, we still find joy. We still find sustenance. We're still, we can still stay in the game. Here's the first paragraph. There are two sides of gratitude. The first is appreciation, where you're value, valuing something that has happened. And the second is attribution, where you've, you, you're recognizing the role of someone or something else in bringing it about. Even when you're grateful to yourself, it is likely that others played a role in your development for the skill, strength, or quality you used. Gratitude is a social emotion. It's a social emotion. It points our warmth and goodwill out toward others. When gratitude levels are high, not only are we more inclined to return favors, but we're also more likely to assist complete strangers. In the 1970s, American psychologist Alice Eisen demonstrated, this is an experiment in which coins were left in public phone booths so that the next thing using them, the next person using them would get a free call. When the person had finished and was leaving the phone booth, one of the experimenters appeared to accidentally drop a file out of papers just in front of the subject. The process was repeated near phone boxes that hadn't been primed with coins. People receiving the unexpected lucky gift of a free phone call were much more likely to help the experimenter pick up her papers. This, this experiment and a host of others like it suggest that our willingness to act on behalf of others isn't just attributable to some people being good-natured and others less so. Our readiness to help others is influenced by the level of gratitude we experience. Now, this ought to be obvious to us, but it's an extra reminder. It's an extra reminder, and we see this all the time. You know, it's very interesting. If you look at different groups of immigrants in America, many groups of immigrants are far right-wing on immigration. We don't want immigrants coming here. Like, I came here illegally. I came here, it took me decades. I worked really hard to build this. My parents worked really hard to build this. Like they need to get in line and go through a really difficult process and we should limit immigration because what I had was because of my hard work and other people should work really hard too. And other immigrants are like, oh my goodness, there may have been hard work. There may have not have been hard work, but I'm just so grateful for what I had and I want to pay that forward. That's also true for people who grew up poor. There's people who grew up poor who are very anti-welfare because they're like, my dad or mom or I worked so hard to get here. And, and those people are entitled, they're entitled and they want handouts and they're lazy bums. They're lazy bums and they need to work harder if, if they want what my family got. And others who feel um, immersed in gratitude, even if they feel they worked hard or feel they didn't work hard and feel they wanna pay for that gratitude. Now, I'm actually not passing judgment on any of those because there's a lot of complex emotions involved in immigration, um, emotions involved in, in poverty, emotions involved in, in hard work, emotions involved that are generational and how people understood how different generations are entitled, different generations worked harder than others. And so there's really a lot to unpack there. 
But it, but what we can say in this moment is that when we live with gratitude, um, we are empirically more likely, likely to be of service to others, um, more likely to be of service to others. And when we live in ingratitude um, or, or, or ungrateful, um, we can unpack psychologically where that's coming from. Is that coming from a, a psychology of scarcity? Is that coming from a trauma of having been harmed and feeling unsafe? Is us being ungrateful coming from vices of selfishness, right? Is our, is our lack of gratitude coming from an over attribution of self that uh, I am greater than I may be, or I'm more, my successes are because of me, my degrees are because of me, my wealth is because of me, right? What is it that is the source of some of my lack of gratitude? And if none of that works on a virtue level, then we can then tap into the empiricism of understanding that we are simply happier if we are more grateful. If we don't want to be more grateful to be service of others, then we can cultivate the gratitude because we know it will bring more meaning into our own lives. Okay, let's keep going. One Midrash tells a profound story of the expression of gratitude in the life, life of the Talmudic sage of Rev, Rav Shimon ben Shetach. Rav Shimon ben Shetach lived in the first century BCE, and this is from Devarim Rabbah. It is related to Rav Shimon ben Shetach that he once bought a donkey from an Ishmaelite. That's what we call a Muslim, right? Now, we don't call it a Muslim because that's anachronistic. This is first century, and the Muslims don't come until what, seventh century or is it eighth? Uh, I mean, uh, I don't know when Islam is uh, when is formed, but uh, Muhammad is Muhammad's the sixth or seventh century, eighth. I forgot. Anyways, I think it's right. Uh, so if, if you know, put in the chat there. Maybe someone could just Wikipedia it real quick. Um, somewhere around the fifth, sixth, the sixth, seventh, eighth century, someone will post it. In any case, obviously Islam is much later, but the Arab, the Arab culture, which will come to emerge into Islam. Um, is who the Ishmaelites are. Ish Ishmael obviously is not Muslim, but when the Talmud is talking about the Ishmaelites, or when the later rabbis, more more importantly, seventh century. Thank you. When the when the later rabbis are talking about the Ishmaelites, they're talking about the Muslims. Or they're, but they're really talking about Arabs. They're talking about Arabs. Anyways, he bought a donkey from an Ishmaelite. His disciples came and found a precious stone suspended from its neck. They said to him, Master. The blessing of the Lord will bring riches. Rav Shimon ben Shetach replied, I purchased a donkey, but I didn't purchase this stone. So he went and returned the gem to the Ishmaelite, who exclaimed, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Shimon ben Shetach. This is such a beautiful midrash. It's usually taught to teach the value of Hashavas Aveda, Hashavat Aveda, the mitzvah of returning lost objects. Actually, there's a rabbi in town here who... Um, it, um, they they made the yeshiva headlines because they bought a desk at a at a garage sale and there was a hundred thousand dollars taped underneath the the desk, and they returned the money, and the the owner of the desk was so surprised um, that they told the reporters or whoever told the reporters about this mitzvah of hashavat avida, the mitzvah to return lost objects, to do all we can to return lost objects whenever it's possible, as opposed to being like, ooh, I scored. This is a big big mitzvah. In any case, that's how this Midrash is normally taught. But here, the Ishmaelite felt despair that he would never again receive his valuable stone. So it is natural that he felt gratitude towards Rav Shimon ben Shetach for returning it. But the Ishmaelite goes further than just expressing gratitude to the rabbi. Rather, he expresses gratitude to the God of the rabbi, to the God of the rabbi. That is a way of thanking both by honoring the rabbi's belief and the God by extension. Gratitude indeed can bring us closer not only to God, but closer to religious pluralism. Kindness and justice can inspire it all. I love this. So look, I'm not going to, I mean, how far would we go? You know, I, to be honest, with Muslims, I'd go further than with Christians. I'm never going to say to a Christian who does something kind to me, I'm never going to say, blessed is Jesus Christ. I just can't do that as a Jew for lots of reasons. But I, but I would say to a Muslim, praise be Allah. I would say praise be Allah. Because because there's a debate in um, there's a debate of uh, the status of Christianity and Jewish thought, and there's a there's a, there's a complicated history there, but nobody thinks Islam is idolatry, um, and you know to praise Allah uh, is not religiously problematic. This is just another name for a monotheistic belief of one God, and so I and so I, I'd be very comfortable saying to a Muslim, praise be Allah, um, as as a religious pluralistic statement. But, um, you know, and the way I would say that to a Christian rather than say Jesus Christ, I would say, 
praise be the Lord. Praise be the Lord. You know, because Lord's in, in, in American language sounds more sounds more Christian. Um, you know, uh, but 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 it is worth fleshing out. Like, how could I go further in religious pluralism with a Christian that would fit with my boundaries? Like, how could I say something um, that would um, that would be affirming of their belief? You know, to follow this 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 idea here of um, how how kindness can cultivate religious pluralism. We think religious pluralism means interfaith dialogue. Okay, I'm a proponent of religious interfaith dialogue, but actually the best form of religious pluralism we might say from this text is kindness. When you when you help a Christian on Christmas day, when you show Christians you care about Christmas, right? When you show when you show a Hindu you know anything about Hinduism and you know actually there, there's holidays of Hinduism, you you actually know something about it, right? You and then you do something kind for them. That actually cult, that can cultivate it's kindness rather than theological. In 2015 Pope Francis addressed our ecological crisis in La Duato Sea, that's the Latin, on, which translates as on care for our common home. Here, the Pope connected our inner spiritual lives with the planet's health. He noted that to address the climate change crisis, we need a spiritual revolution toward the virtues of humility, gratitude, and sobriety, and away from the vices of greed and overconsumption due to a fear of scarcity. Friends, here is where I think once again, that Musar and social justice can interconnect. Here's where I think Jewish wisdom matters most in the political sphere. How does it matter most? Not in the politics of rage. Oh, we're Jews, we're outraged, and we're gonna scream in with no nuance. Okay, okay, go scream with no nuance and join the bandwagons. You're welcome to do it. I do it sometimes too. But what does it mean to bring Jewish wisdom into the social change sphere? I think it means to think about the ills of society and bring the virtues that address those. What's the ill? Climate change. Okay, we can just scream about legislative changes, and we and we should do that because the world is burning. Um, the world is uh, at great risk. But what is the Pope saying here, which I think is very wise? If we cultivate the virtues of humility, gratitude, and sobriety, and move away from the vices of greed and overconsumption, and, and the fear of scarcity, those can help us move towards a global revolution that helps us rethink how we relate to stuff, how we relate to stuff. And in fact, environmentalists can also be full of a lack of humility, lack of gratitude, and be full of greed. And so, yes, they support the bill that's going to change the pipeline and where we drill, but they're also gas guzzlers and they're also over consumers and over reliant on disposables. And part of that is because they haven't gone through the spiritual revolution around virtues and vices. This is where spirituality can matter. And I love how the Pope phrases this. Indeed, gratitude is not just spiritually and morally meaningful. It is a virtue that can change our behaviors and the way we respond to various moral illness issues. This is also true, friends. We scream about social ills. Oh, you're a racist. You're a white supremacist. You're a nationalist. You're a sexist. Okay, we can scream all we want about that stuff. But if we really want to make change in the country, we have to think that those aren't the ills themselves sometimes. It's not just hate. It's not so simple as combat hate. I never understand these signs like speak out against hate. Okay. But what is this hate emerging from? What are, the, what are the lack of virtues? What are the vices in place on a psychological and spiritual level that are leading to these social ills, right? In this spirit of changing the world by first changing ourselves, Rav Shlomo Volbi change, shares an insight on how to cultivate more gratitude. So how are we going to do this? Okay, we're Jews. Here's what Rav Shlomo Volbi says. If one appreciates that all the needs one has fulfilled for others are truly goodness and kindness, one most certainly increases love and friendship in the world and comes to realize that one exists in a world of kindness. When one hides from the, this recognition, the world is gray. One's perception is that every person is only doing their job. Each merchant only wants to profit. The doctor only wants the payment. The educator only the salary. There is no goodness, no kindness, and no friendship. It's all transactional. The world is sucked dry. No, we want to live in a bright world, a world full of goodness and kindness, love and friendship. This illuminated world is built through showing gratitude to all. Keep going. He further writes, gratitude is intellectually compelling, and it is a very good trait. 
So why are we so often grateful? There are two reasons for this. The first is that a person's first impression is that everything comes by itself and that it is all coming to him. The other reason is when I receive good from someone and I recognize that good, I become indebted to him. Okay, so there's a lot to say about this here and how we cultivate this. And this is uh, one of the great plagues in American society today on the left, on the right, on the, uh, across the political spectrum is that um, is a very, a, a very negativity towards others a cynicism. Everyone is out there for themselves. All politics is corrupt. Everyone is out to make a buck. The sense that you can't believe your doctors, right? You can't believe the lawyers. You can't believe the teachers. Everyone is out there. Everyone's greedy. You know, I, I try to run away quickly from anyone who holds such toxic worldviews, right? That everyone is selfish and greedy. And all you got to do is fend for yourself because no, nobody's got your back. You can't trust anyone, right? And Revolvi is saying, no, 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 friends. Of course, of course, there's real people to be careful of. Of course, there's corruption. Of course, there's injustice. But the fundamental approach as a, as Yehudi, right, as, as the people of Yehuda is a people of gratitude. The fundamental approach is, wow, I'm alive. I'm grateful. Wow, I got clothes on. I'm grateful. Wow, I got food today. I'm grateful. I have a job. I'm grateful. My fundamental orientation is, oh, I should be paid more, or I'm, I, I don't like the people I work with, or I don't like this country. This country is a horrible country. Right? The fundamental orientation is, I'm so grateful to live in America. Yes, America's flawed. I'm so grateful for a job. Yes, my job is flawed. I'm so grateful to like be alive. My life is flawed. Right? We start with gratitude. Otherwise, life will be miserable. It's said of the Kutzka Rebbe, when he was going to throw away his old shoes, that he would first wrap up his shoes in a newspaper to show his gratitude before putting them in the trash. We express gratitude not only to God, not only to people, but to all we have benefited from. This is why when we throw challah away, if you don't finish your challah on Shabbat, we don't just throw the challah in the garbage, the leftover bread. We wrap up the challah. The challah should be wrapped as the minhag, is the custom, to wrap it up and, and, to, and place it in the garbage, right? Our, our gratitude for the, the bread, because challah represents uh, sustenance. Even if it's just scraps of bread, we wrap up the challah and put it in the garbage. We don't just throw it in the garbage, is the custom, right? Because we're grateful to the sustenance we have. Okay, I know this is a little long. Uh, I got a, a, a little more to go, then we're going to open it up. There's, there's so much to say today. Let's consider the messy side of gratitude as well. Okay, gratitude is not just all good. Like everything, we want to think critically. Gratitude is wonderful. But let's think about the messy side as well. What about the person who has suffered so much and feels more tension than gratitude? We can't judge them. Consider the, the words of Rav Yehuda Amital. Yehuda Amital, in this book, Confronting the Holocaust as Religious and a Historical Phenomenon, Rav Yehuda Amital. He, he was a Holocaust survivor and, uh, and a builder of the, of, uh, as a Rosh Yeshiva of the Haratzion Yeshiva. And he wrote, on my first Yom Kippur, after being liberated from a Nazi labor camp, I prayed with other survivors in a cramped cellar. I cannot fully describe the storm of emotion I felt then, but I will try to reconstruct some of that feeling for you now. I was young then. I had no children. My parents had been murdered, along with most of the population of our town. Amongst the survivors in that small room, there were people who had lost their children, parents, spouses, and siblings. They prayed, and I with them. Was their worship of God based on gratitude? Can a Jew who has lost a wife and children possibly serve God on the basis of his kindness? Can a Jew whose job was the removal of the charred remains of corpses from the crematoria of Auschwitz be capable of serving God on the basis of gratitude? No, not in any way, shape, or form. But where then does that leave us? And this is a profound question. What, uh, uh, a woman who has just had a miscarriage is going to pray from a place of gratitude? A person who uh, has just suffered a car crash is going to pray from gratitude? Right, and, and that's what we're going to advise them. Rav Amital quotes the Talmudic statement that after seeing the destruction of the Holy Temple, that, guys, this is one of the most radical Talmudic passages. Here's what it says here, friends. It says here in the Talmud that the prophets of Daniel and Yirmiyahu, Daniel and Jeremiah, could no longer refer to God as awesome and mighty. God is not no ra vegadol, right? For since they knew that God was truthful, they would not lie to, to they would not lie to God. 
This is a God of truth. You can't lie to God. And so th these prophets said you can't call God great, great and mighty after seeing the destruction of the temple. Rav Amital teaches that serving God must be built on truth, not on falsehood or flattery, what's called in Hebrew, Hanifa, Hanifa. Wow, wow. Indeed, perhaps we should not express gratitude for that, that which we don't feel grateful. We must bring our emotion and cognition together and bring our honesty and integrity in prayer and expressions of thanks. Sometimes those who have so little, nonetheless, can be our teachers of gratitude. Not too long ago, I spent the morning in a border detention center talking with Pastor Florence. She opened her heart so deeply. She was serving as a pastor of a small church in Africa, but recently had to flee her home country of Cameroon after the government tortured her and shot and killed her husband. And now she, they were coming after her. She got a flight to Ecuador and had to flee to Colombia, was hiding in the jungles of Panama, sought safety in Costa Rica, fled rape in Nicaragua and Honduras, was starving in Guatemala and was robbed in Mexico and finally raised her arms as she approached the U.S. border seeking asylum. Instead of receiving a hug, a hospital, and healing therapy, she, was, she has been locked away as a criminal. For, she was locked away as a criminal for many months, now waiting for court trials to determine her destiny. Looking at the burns on her body from being tortured, I felt that this should be someone deeply angry, and yet she only radiated faith and light. She has no family with her, no money or property, no home, no country, and no plan or, or control over any plans in her life, but said the only thing that enabled her to keep going was her faith in God and a trust in the path forward. As she told all of this to me in a little whisper across a desk in this detention center, I wish I could share with you a picture of her deep eyes that didn't leave my mind that whole morning. So much pain and fear in her, in her eyes. So much faith and light and godliness in her eyes. One might think she'd be full of hate for America, for criminalizing her when she was seeking nothing more than asylum, survival and reunification with her sons. But she only expressed gratitude to me that she had food, although she said she can't really eat due to her African eating norms, and that she had a roof over her head, albeit a jail cell, because she had spent so many nights under the rain and lack of protection. She said through all of this pain and loss, she continues to experience revelations from God that she is seeking to understand. I'll maintain her privacy about some of those spiritual visions that she shared with me. Florence traced together her story and through all her struggles and hardships, she traced it into a meaningful story of survival and gratitude. Rather than a politics of rage, she was full of gratitude. We have this choice every day in our lives. When we are feeling down or frustrated, we can cling to gratitude. We can just keep refocusing our mind and spirit toward all the good in life and in our particular life. If we will it, light can prevail over darkness. Friends, to wrap up, when a sofer, a scribe, prepares parchment for writing a Torah, a mezuzah, or tefillin, the sofer traces sirtutim, lines that are used to keep the writing evenly spaced. When we remember the Shabbat prohibition of Masartate, can bear in mind that Torah concepts allow us to make our own sirtutim, to make the boundaries between the dark experiences that all of us encounter in the world and those many aspects of our lives for which we must indeed be, that we desire to express gratitude and which are lit are lit with the light of Shabbat. Oh, that was a mouthful. Okay, let me pause there and open up the floor for some uh, conversation here on any of this or beyond. Shmuley? Yes, please. Don't understand um, the wrapping and disposing of leftover challah. Um, environmentally, it doesn't make a lot of sense if you have bread not to eat it. What's the oh. base? Oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't clear there. No. Um, I, now I see that the way I expressed it sounds like we should intentionally throw it out. What I meant to say is 
We should eat all of our challah. We should enjoy our challah. Be careful of our carbs, of course. I ate way too much challah. <laughs> um, but, you, you, but you didn't join this for uh, diet advice. <laughs> um, but uh, if you're like me, you should limit your challah rather than engage in more. In any case, we should eat all of our challah and enjoy our challah and save it. We save our challah. We eat it all week. But what I meant to say was, if we choose to throw away any part of our challah, if there's any part that looks like crumbs or we don't want to save a part of it, or we kept it for four days and it doesn't look good anymore. If at any point we choose to throw away of a part of our challah, we, we can wrap it. I, I, I wouldn't use plastic, wrap it in a little paper towel or find something that's already garbage, like a package and put it in there. This is not some halakha. This is not some requirement. Again, merely a custom like the Kutzka Rebbe's custom to wrap his shoes, which is merely a way to say that, yes, this is not sacred. It's not holy. It doesn't have the name of God on it. But there are things that represent my sustenance in life and my gratitude for that sustenance means I don't want to just throw it away. I want to kind of show some reverence towards that, towards that sustenance. Thanks, Eileen, for that clarification. Hi, Shmuley. Thank I you. That it. was really, really beautiful. And it happened to come up. I happened to be taking a class in Tikkun Musar from the Institute of Jewish Spirituality. Oh, and what we did yesterday was Chesed. And they translated as loving interconnectedness, which is gorgeous. So they mentioned, which I think comes very much in what you're saying, what they call ocean awareness. In other words, each of us are a drop and the drop forms an ocean. It's a lovely way of seeing things. And it's our connectedness, not only to fellow humans, but to the trees, to the animals and everything else. So just a few more things connected, like a little bit about throwing away leftover color, any leftover food. Yeah. We have composting here. I don't know if you do in Phoenix, but our garbage is garbage recycling and composting. And what a, what a more beautiful way then of interconnectedness, of treating um, food items that you throw out than putting it in the compost bin. So that's one thing. The other thing on a practical level is having worked with the public, a smile and a gee, thank you can count for so much. And even like we're human beings, I know, you know, the nurses I work with, if a pa or with me, if a patient is really, you know, gee, thank you, and it, you feel better and you actually treat them better without even knowing it. And somebody who's fetchy and nasty, yeah. you, you just, you don't even want to go in their room. So Beautiful. even, even yeah. for your own sake, be a mensch. Beautiful, Lauren. So let me let me reflect on two things you said here. Um, firstly, on this idea of water and life, um, I, I I shared this brief thought two weeks ago, and I can't remember if it was here or somewhere else. So forgive me if I said this already, but I don't think I did. Which is one of the one of the ways I like how Buddhist thought talks about death, and this might speak to some of us, or it may not to others, is um, that um, one that one's wa one's wave returns to the ocean, right? Um, now, what's comforting about that is, yes, the wave ceases, right? It cra the wave crashes to the shore, but the wave ultimately returns to the body of water, and um, it becomes interconnected with the rest of the water, and to some degree is a part of the next wave to come, hence Buddhist reincarnation. Of course, there's Jewish ideas of reincarnation as well, but I, but I really like that idea um, as a comforting thought about life and death. The idea of the of the wave crashing to the shore and returning to the ocean, um, in thinking about our interconnectivity, and with a comfort of understanding that the finality is not not totally final, um, in that kind of vision. So let me share that. And then to your second point, um, uh, you know, I, I I just love and I just want to I just want to um, I just want to reiterate the importance of what you've said how composting is a form of gratitude, which we could build off this idea of covering the challah and of the Kutzka Rebbe bearing shoes, how tipping people, tipping people as a form of gratitude, saying thank you, and saying thank you, not just when someone goes above and beyond, but thank you for someone doing their job, right? Yes, all you did today was take the garbage, and yes, you were paid for that, but thank you because you did something essential for me. 
right? Thank you. Yes, you're, you're in the checkout line and all you did was do your job. Yes, you're paid, but thank you for doing that because I'm the recipient of this. It's still kindness, right? It's still kindness, even if it's someone's job. And Lauren, you're so right. So many people um, receive complaints. People are negative. They complain and those stick with us. And so to go above and beyond and, and, and express gratitude, it's also true for online reviews. People go online and they give reviews when they're really mad. One star review. You're the worst company. Right. But also if something's good, we should take the effort to give a positive review. This, even if it's just something that wasn't so big in our lives, like that's a company that produced something of quality for me. Like you deserve a review, you know, thank you, Lauren. Rabbi Biller, I see you wrote over there. Would you like to read it or would you like me to read it? Me? Me? Okay. So here's what Rabbi Biller wrote on the side. Regarding whether one's own difficulty should embitter one towards others, I worked hard, so should they, or should teach compassion. Let me help their way. Um, uh, is a way my a way mine wasn't made easy. Oh yes, right. How often in the Torah we are told, "Remember, you were a stranger in a strange land, and therefore, therefore, treat the stranger kindly." Also, the Torah tells us, "Do not hate the Egyptian." And I paraphrase: They housed you for hundreds of years. Over and over, we are told of the ways to find gratefulness and to learn from our suffering to ease the way for others. Beautiful. Wow. You could write a whole book on that. And both both points, both how we're reminded that we were strangers. And that that stranger consciousness is is channeled towards gratitude and responsibility, and also the prohibition of hating the Egyptian, right? The prohibition of of um, of um, of uh, of that we talked about a while ago around grudges, around holding grudges, and this is also. You know, I, I understand what the far left is saying in America, that we should hate Trumpists. We should hold them accountable, right? The politics of rage that are in the progressive camp. But I, uh, I and again, I, and I validate people who take that approach, but I, I, I disagree with that. I think that's a, it's actually a Torah prohibition um, to go to, you know, to, to, to move a place of rage. Yes, there's always accountability in place for people who have done great harms. Um, you know, legal accountabilities and social social and social accountabilities. But I think this approach that um, we got to make people pay for what they did, um, you know, and basically, you know, basically cultivate a hate so that those people get buried and smashed and oversimplify and say that every one of them is a white supremacist and a white nationalist, which of course is, is, is so foolish to suppose that that half of the country is a white supremacist and that white nationalist um, is so foolish. Um, nonetheless, there should be accountability. But I think that that emerges from what you're saying here also, that we can't, that uh, you can't hate the Egyptian. You're oppressor, you can't hate the oppressor. Okay. Uh, yeah, Eileen, when you hate, you harm yourself more. Beautiful. Thank you. Okay, someone else here. Carol, I, Carol was going to say something. Hi. Um, and the part about when you talked about um, pray, uh, praying to God after a, tra a, a tragedy. Uh, I think that can be summed up as those people are hopeful. Yeah. Hopefulness yeah. is what gives them the ability to continue to have faith. Beautiful, beautiful. So building off what Carol's saying here, which is so profound, um, it, it, it's amazing because um, um, the ultra-Orthodox like one narrative and atheists like the other narrative around, around Holocaust survivors. Atheists love the narrative of how could you believe in God after a Holocaust? Like, of course there's no God, right? And look how many survivors are atheists. And ultra-Orthodox Jews love the, love the narrative of Wow, how much more, how much more amazing at how many survivors became religious, even in the face of the Holocaust, how heroic they were to, to become religious, right? And so one of those narratives might speak to one of us or the other. That's, that's totally fine. Um, of course, both reactions did emerge. Survivors who said, I'm walking away from Judaism as a religion. Judaism is only cultural for me. And survivors that prayed more fervently than ever, became more religiously than ever, and believed in God more than ever. And both sides can't really understand the other. What do you mean God? How could you believe in God after that? Or the other side that says, what, what do you mean? Like, like, like the miracles that emerged, the stories of miracles, the stories of resiliency and, and, and survival that emerged, like I'm doubling down on faith. And so Carol's saying over here that those who are praying in such an experience 
um, uh, while it might not be praise, it might not be gratitude. They're praying in a sense of, of hope. Carol, can you flesh that a little more? What do you mean? What do you mean by hope? A hope for a better time, but a hope for exactly. Uh, I heard this yesterday on one of the uh, television interviews of a black person on Black MLK Day, and talked about how through her youth and and all she had seen that uh, there was always hope that kept her going. She was a reporter and she had reported on so many of the black lives that had been lost in the, this past several years to brutality, to police brutality. And she's, and, and the, somebody asked her, how do you keep, you know, how do you keep your head up? How do you keep writing about it? And she says, cause I have hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's reminded me of that. That, you know, which is which is very powerful. This 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 other theme of prayer, which is prayer is a form of longing. Prayer is a form of longing and a positive longing that that sees a positive future, or um, prayer as a as a hopeful space, a, a, a healing space. Thank you for that. Yeah, Cheryl Cheryl Hamron, that's great. That how this goes hand in hand with Birkata Gomel. Um, yeah, this blessing of thanksgiving, this blessing of gratitude and of hope. Yeah, someone else was about to jump in here. Please. Uh, Let me say one thing as we're waiting for someone else to jump in, which is that because part of our theme here, oh, and I see someone else wrote, so I'll, I'll come back to that. Because part of our theme here is about scratching lines. Part of what I'm trying to suggest here because it wasn't always clear, um, is that um, part of the process of gratitude is actually deciding what's in and out in our emotional space, right? And how do we take some of the negative emotions, which are only human and only valid and only okay to feel, but put boundaries on them? Some people are plagued with fear. They literally check the stock market like every two hours right? Or they're plagued with, with fear of, of some other kind, right? Where they're constantly um, worried uh, that something's going to go wrong. Um, others are, you know, have other negative emotions that they constantly are driving them. They're triggering them. Everything is a trigger, right? Again, normal to have these emotions, but to put them in check and to put boundaries around how those drive us. And you don't just fight fire with fire. You don't just attack the negative negative emotions. If we fill ourselves with positive emotion, it doesn't leave room for those negative emotions. By filling ourselves with gratitude, it removes that that fear of loss. It removes that scarcity. It removes that trauma a little bit because I'm not as focused on the negative. In this moment, at least, I'm hardwiring my brain to be grateful. Okay, someone else jump in here. Actually, let let me read Nona. Nona writes on the side, in terms of motivating people to stay engaged in a struggle, to take action and not be overwhelmed by the negative, gratitude is a critical element of engaging. Gratitude for our natural world bridges all divides and is a way to find common ground in motivating people to come together to fight climate change and avoid artificial partisanship. We all resonate with natural beauty and being part of the interwoven, uh, the interwoven web of life. Thank you for that. And Nona, from your um, lips to God's ears, because um, I really hope that's true. One of my great fears of this next few years are those who are change makers for um, marginalized populations um, and for sustainability uh, planet are actually driven much more by anger than they are by vision. That is to say, a lot of people fought for change these last four years because they were so mad. And I have no idea how those movements are going to be sustained once the target of their rage has died down. Because I think most of those people are only willing to act from rage. I think acting from gratitude as known as laying out so beautifully, I think is very hard to sustain. And so um, I think we're gonna see a culture of laziness emerge and people who are trying to cultivate change are gonna have to think, what is the psychological motivator we're gonna use for people to get involved and care about uh, environmental sustainability, not uh, you know, among many other issues, and I hope your 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 point of gratitude is right. Um, okay, uh, someone else, please jump in. I would I would like to respond to that if I could, Great. Rabbi. Um, 
one of the things that was really powerful in the women's movement in the 70s was uh, consciousness raising groups where people got together and had shared experience. They probably ended up in a lot of rage and we're probably still paying for some of that rage, but they were effective as a connection. And I really have heard almost in every group I'm in people saying, how do we get together to talk to people that we don't agree with, partly because many of us don't have a lot of friends that we don't agree with. And some people have friends and family they don't agree with who are so toxic that they can't go to that space with them to talk about almost anything now. Um, and I was really thinking in the context of Musar with the Kala coming up, but also in the, in the Jewish world in general, the potential for congregations or communities to offer a sort of place to have individual sort of red blue comment con um, conversations or not even to label them that way, but to have conversations about common ground to practice mediation techniques together to use Musar as a um, as, is one great tool, but there's many others to um, provide a structure for the conversation because we have all been so reactive for so long, just trying to really desperately save our democracy. And I, I do think that that energy, I think people have it and they want to do it differently. I really profoundly believe that. Beautiful, beautiful, Nona. Thank you for that. Okay, let's hear from one more person. If I can just, sorry, I know I spoke already. If I can just suggest, I mean, something I learned to do when I was going through a really rough time was to have a gratitude journal. Yeah. Um, it just, I just think it helps because sometimes totally. rough, life can be rough, but if you look for the one or two things, um, even if it's just, gee, I'm so glad my cat is around for a few days in a row, but eventually, you know, you're grateful for the sunshine, you're grateful for the person who was nice, nice right. to you at the grocery store. So yeah, just, just a suggestion, and I can't reiterate enough, just say thank you, like you said, just say thank you to the person at the grocery store and give them a big smile because you've made their day, you know? And, and the more people they get like that, I always thank the bus driver. I did it in Israel and I got strange looks because they're not used to it, right, but exactly. um, right. really not used to it. Yes, exactly. But yeah. just, um, just do it. Oh, I'm sounding like a teacher now, but anyways. Thanks, no, no, that's good. And, and, and that's a good segue into how I want to spend our last two minutes. I want to hear action items. Um, what, what, what is something you want that something you might do? you might already do or want to try doing to cultivate more gratitude in your life. Feel free to chat or to speak. What is something you already do or want to do or want to experiment with to live with a, a drop more, uh, a lot more, drop more gratitude. Lauren suggests, uh, uh, thank you. Lauren suggests um, uh, a, a gratitude journal. What else? I think obviously the simple thing is just to be aware, which most of us aren't, of your interactions and doing that with other people in a, a manner that is helpful and kind, which will generate more gratitude. Great, great. Eddie writes, volunteering to help others makes me feel grateful. Great. You know, um, Anona writes, writing, to, writing love letters, 
to the earth, to people around you, to family, brief at least one a day. Lauren writes, be a mensch, love all this. You know, if, if you're a meditator, let me offer you a meditation uh, idea. Whether you do it for 30 seconds, you do it for five minutes, you do it for 20, go to the, go to the micro on something instead of the macro, right? Meditate on your, on your refrigerator or meditate on your doorknob or on your body, meditate on your finger or on your toe, right? Feel gratitude for something really small because what that can do by meditating on something really small, it can help us to start to see not just big things we're grateful. Wow, I'm grateful I'm alive. I'm grateful for the sun. We can start to train ourselves to see really little things in our life to be grateful for um, that are all around us, that if they were gone, we would miss them. Have a great day, everyone. God bless.